Welcome back to Born Curious, a new podcast from Harvard Radcliffe Institute. I'm your co-host, Ivalisa Strada. And I'm Heather Min. Today, Heather and I are bringing you some highlights from a conversation between Tressie McMillan Cottom and Radcliffe's Dean, Tomiko Brown-Nagan. For those of you who do not know her, Tressie McMillan Cottom is an author, New York Times columnist, and a 2020 MacArthur Fellow. She is also a sociologist, a public thinker, and a professor with the Center for Information, Technology, and Public Life at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And if any of you are on TikTok, you may remember the wild attention that Cottom's video asking, what is blonde, generated. Let's dive in to this interesting and at times moving conversation between Brown Megan and Cottom. Wow, good afternoon, everyone. Good to see you. And what a delight to have Trissy with us today, if I can Thank call you by your first name. You may. Good. I have to tell you, every time I wake up to a Tressy column, <laughs> I'm just delighted. I got to say, it's very nice that you are always thrilled uh, when a Tressy is released. I am always still. <laughs> the morning one is released. I don't sleep well, still. Uh, for the record, that never passes. So thank you all for coming and for uh, being on the other side of one of those columns every time it happens. Sure. Thank you. Sure. So let's start with Sint. Yes. You write in Thick that your work is underpinned by what is still a radical idea, that Black women are rational and human. Yeah. I wonder if you can tell us what you mean by that and how that point of departure shapes your, your writing and your scholarship. Yeah, I think it is still very much a radical notion. And, and I use the word rational quite deliberately in that it was a, uh, a rebuke of the idea that you could always assume the positionality of black women um, as being one rooted in, uh, you know, racial politics. And because of that, you could dismiss uh, black women's uh, political subjectivity uh, as being uh, a politics of grievance. Mm. Um, which is, I think, still deeply embedded in our understanding of Black women's understanding of themselves as political subjects, but also our limited understanding in public discourse, and I would go so far as to say embedded in our understanding of them across many disciplinary knowledges of Black women, um, both individually and collectively as being stand-ins for black politics, like I, our, our personal lives, our our um, our inner selves as being stand-ins for black politics, mm-hmm. um, which sort of flattens our human experience to this linear black narrative that is really just always a story about America's narrative, as if we are not, as if we are not a story about human experience. Um, and then also, I'm always, almost always uh, tweaking economics. But I was doing it uh, in that essay, and I do it more implicitly in my work to say not that Black women are infallible, but if we are fallible, it is not because we are Black women. That our rationality should be taken uh, as a point of departure just as you would take any other person's point, rationality as a point of departure. And that if you do that, 
that our complexities could lend itself to a better understanding of the complexities of our current political economy and our current realities. Um, and then what I try to do is say, and this is what that would look like. Here's what you understand better or differently better, certainly subjective. I think you understand the world better if you endeavor to try to understand it uh, from uh, understanding black women as being rational. And so let's take that out of the ether, right? Let's bring that down and let's try to touch it and let's try to make that gritty. So what that looks like, for example, is um, we are, love, you know, there's a, you know, there's a social media saying or cliche, you know, trust black women that I think people uh, take literally, which is, you know, whatever black women say, believe them. Um, which in and of itself is flattening though. As I say what, black women can't be wrong or black women can't change their minds or you know, uh, black women can't be scammers, right? No, that, that is not what that means. What I, or how I understand it is that no, trust that black women have a perspective on the world uh, and that if you interrogate it the way you would interrogate anyone else's and then if you find fault, you attribute it to, I don't know, you can attribute it to them having imperfect information. Mm -hmm. You could attribute it to them having um, a need and they're trying to get over on you. You could attribute it to the fact that uh, you are negotiating for something and they want to win. You could attribute it to them being highly competitive. You could attribute it to lots of things, mm -hmm. but not to them being a black woman. And that if you do that, one, I think that you become uh, a better actor in our current environment, but I also think that you become a better um, interpreter of the social environment and the social reality. Um, and then I try to show what that would look like over uh, the body of work. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Let's talk about kinship mm -hmm. and something else that you've written, which is that your essays always start with a question why me and not my grandmother? Why is that your starting point and what concepts are you getting at with that starting point? Yeah. Well, I'm getting at uh, one thing that I think that some people find depressing, but I find oddly liberating, which is that for all of its sociological realities, black life in America today is empirically better than it has ever historically been, and yet it is still empirically, cumulatively, structurally unequal. And I try to hold both of those realities at the same time. Mm -hmm. I try to recognize that my grandmother quite literally could not imagine my life. Mm -hmm. She used to say to me, what are you, little girl? <laughs> she used to say to me. <laughs> She could not imagine my life. And at the same time, she could absolutely imagine my choices. She could imagine the constraints on my choices, at least. She would have understood, she wouldn't have understood the particulars, for example, of arguing about tenure, mm. for example, at my, at my job. But she would have understood why I had to argue about keeping my job, mm -hmm. right? Both of, she would have understood that. And so trying to understand how I have these things that she could not have imagined, why me and not her, when she 
was to my mind and to the mind of many people who knew us both and loved us both, <laughs> far smarter. Mm. <laughs> uh, and I think skilled in ways that if she'd had the structural opportunity um, to develop, would have been creative in ways that, I mean, I can probably only hope. I inherit a lot of my creativity from her. Um, she had a playful, creative spirit that she really did keep almost all of her life. She was one of my first and earliest playmates. Mm -hmm. uh, we imagined together, created plays and stories together. Um, and so whenever I write something, I think I probably got a lot of that from her but also the idea of that for her just didn't exist structurally, right? And so I think everything that is possible for me to be, of course, is about structural opportunity. And I always wanna keep that in mind. One, I think it is a check on you know, my ambitions, mm. but it is also a check on me about the importance of the intersection of biography and history. I could be as individually ambitious and talented as I want it to be. And if the structure had not imagined the possibility of me, it wouldn't have mattered. Mm. And I like to keep that in mind because I don't want the lack of my imagination to make someone else impossible. Wow. That is amazing. And so I look out like across the landscape and like, you know, and I think about what we we're saying about trans children, for example, and I go, well, is this a problem of my imagination? And yes, it is, and me, me individually or me collectively, right? And I think, oh, that's, that's, that's an us problem, right? That to me is the thing I always, always want to have a check on because that's what her life and holding those two up has taught me. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you to talk a bit more about the question that you're often asked which is whether you align yourself with the interests of black people. Mm -hmm. In response to that, you know that, well, it's important to situate blackness, mm -hmm. right? To push back against the notion that blackness is fixed, right. that yeah. it is static, that black people are without contradictions, internal mm -hmm. contradictions. and. Um, you specifically know the relevance of class to the Black experience and region. And we talked about how that resonates so deeply with me because yeah. we both have this Black Southern That's right. experience that so deeply informs our scholarship. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why it's so important to unpack Blackness. Well, one, I think that when we don't unpack it, uh, it enables some of the worst impulses of people uh, who would want to own it and sell it back to us, right? As a um, uh, more as weapon than as tool. I'm always inclined to want to put a, a check on my on my own worst impulses. So that's the first thing. It's like the big answer, but the more particular answer about any you know, student of history, or even just a casual, you know, reader of history uh, has to be attuned to the fact that um, that identity and people's understanding of themselves changes across time. And I have to believe that it is supposed to, and that if you want to fix that 
in a period of time, you probably do more harm than good. That, um, that loving people isn't fixing them in time. And so if I say I love black people, I probably mean that to be an action, which means loving them in action across time, which means allowing growth and change and difference to happen. And so the part of that is to understand and accept those differences and being attuned to the fact that they exist, um, but also to acknowledge that my definition of blackness is not the only one, Right. that we can't own it. It's not property to own it. It can really only be shared. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have to accept that the way some people experience blackness doesn't overlap 100% with ours and that that's not only okay, but probably natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the places where they overlap are places for us to build shared experience, but not places for us to police the boundaries of those places. Where we fight to own it, again, doesn't serve us. Mm-hmm. Um, ownership is at the basis, not of blackness, but of anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, and. So I wanna keep a check on that impulse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think there's room for us to honor the parts of the black experience that are unique to where we came from without dishonoring any other version of blackness. I think it is perfectly fine to say that my experience of the black experience that comes from the rural South working class black experience is authentic to me and means something special and that in no way um, devalues any other black experience. Yeah. And before you became Tressie, the columnist, how did people respond to that complication? Because although you say people should know that it's true, that there's this subjectivity. Yeah, they I, do know, I think. They do know. They have to know. And they accepted. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, your own scholarships shows that. Isn't yeah. that the story yeah. of they know, but accept is something else okay. entirely, right? Okay. All right. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah. I don't think they accept it now. Yeah. No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so let's talk about uh, popular culture. Yeah. You write about topics that some academics dismiss as unimportant or unserious, things like beauty, style, popular culture. Why do these subjects matter? And why do you think some people don't want to concede that they matter? Oh, oh. (laughs) I like this question, I think, but that means I could get in trouble, trouble. Oh, it's okay. Oh, 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 listen, see. Okay, I think one of the really honest answers here is we don't like to do it because we aren't good at it. Hmm. I, I I know, I'm so sorry. I think some of it is, I mean, because fundamentally what that is is that we're talking about the aesthetics of power. Right. We absolutely know. It goes back to your previous question. Hmm. We know. Do we accept it? Mm-hmm. I think that is a rejection of us 
accepting that these are statuses that hold power over us. I think we don't like that it holds power over us. And many of us have either opted out of valuing those things or feel somehow judged by the fact that those things exist and so don't want to engage. And so we decide not to participate in these ways, which perversely gives them more power over us. Right. That my argument is it is precisely because we don't engage with them that uh, they continue to have, I think, a disproportionate amount of power over uh, intellectual production. And in some parts of popular culture, I think we give it more weight than popular culture does, which in some ways sort of brings some of the aesthetics of power down to size by making it malleable and accessible in a, in a certain kind of way. So I think we should be in that space. And, I, and I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. Um, when you live in a mediatized world, um, that is a world that plays with the manipulation of aesthetics. Right. In an Internet world in particular, we're talking about two mediums. We're talking about discourse and we're talking about images. That's what the Internet is. It's pictures of cats and <laughs> it's tweets. I mean, that's the Internet. Right. Um, discourse pictures. We think that we can just engage in the discourse part. But if you haven't been paying attention, the aesthetics are winning. The aesthetics are winning. Uh, I can tell you who knows this. Politicians know it. Uh, the financiers know it. And I think we know it. I'm just saying I think that we aren't playing in it in the same way. I think we aren't translating those power dynamics. And I think that's part of the role that we should be playing in public life, in helping the public make sense of the ways, some of the ways that those aesthetics are playing with ideas and power around us. So that's one of the reasons why I like to do it. And I also, you know, there's a part of me that perversely enjoys being the person in the room sometimes, maybe, kinda, that just brings up, I know everybody sees the elephant in the room, right? I, so why not do it? <laughs> okay, so let's talk about uh, a recent example of your cultural critique. Okay. This was the a video about blonde hair ah, yeah. that got you banned from TikTok right. and inspired a lot of chatter and yes. pushback. Tell us about your arguments uh, and why you think people reacted so strongly yeah. to it. Um, they reacted so strongly, I think, precisely because it is talking plainly about the aesthetics of power. Um, I have learned... Uh, that you can talk about a lot of things in public. And yes, you can get angry mail. I've been getting angry mail for many years now. I'm not, uh, it doesn't quite bother me. I will say that the scale has changed. Mm -hmm. And postal mail actually does bother me just a little because I just think of the effort yes. that took. Um, so, I, so I will say that this article, more than anything I have written in many years, did generate a lot of postal mail. And so I think it's two things. I think it's about the aesthetics of power and also where I assigned 
responsibility for the aesthetics of uh, uh, who deploys that power. So I think we like the idea of somebody doing something to us, right? Like, uh, you know, the patriarchy makes me do this. And I, to tell you the truth, I sometimes forget, academia did this to me, I sometimes forget the things that we're supposed to talk about in polite company. And this was one of those cases. I honestly said this casually. I forgot that we aren't supposed to say this around normal people. I just said, you know, like blonde, and forgot that that's a thing. And, um, and that is because blonde is the way we talk about whiteness in polite everyday company, and I forgot. Mm. That's all. I just, I forgot. I forgot other people could hear me. I forgot that people don't know that's what, or they do know it's what they're doing, but they don't know it consciously, and I just forgot. That's all. And so uh, that'll teach me a lesson. Um, but then I decided to commit to the bit because uh, I believed what I said and I doubled down on it because I am an only child and I, <laughs> I never lost that impulse. And I did though, and I thought, I would, you know, I have traveled around and it's now really has kind of taken over my life a bit, my public life anyway. Um, people feel very deeply convicted by this because what I was saying is we make up our world every day in our interpersonal interactions. It isn't the patriarchy isn't somebody standing out there, right? In the same way, racism isn't standing out there, right? Classism isn't standing out there. We remake those things every day in the things we do with and to each other, right? And because we have so many big, scary things going on that really have given us lots of boogeymen out there, you know, we got the DeSantis's of the world and the Trumps of the, really the Trumps of the world who just have different names, but the Trumps of the world, and we are really comfortable with a big, scary, nice enemy, but you know, we do it also to ourselves. Where do you think they get the language from? Why do you think it works? And I think that we are uncomfortable with realizing that that's what we have done, especially when you have, in the case of white guilt and racism, an entire system designed to make you feel blameless. Um, and then you wrap all of that up in something that is supposed to be uh, frivolous. Mm -hmm. It's just a little hair color, right? Frivolous. This is, I think, the trap of relegating the discussion of aesthetics to something unserious. I am often saying to my editor at the time, aesthetics should be on the politics pages. I think we should cover fashion on the econ pages. I'm serious. Why not? It moves billions of dollars in capital. It does. Why don't we? And I think if we thought about it more seriously, it wouldn't have spent, sent so many people into a tailspin to say, well, this is economics, this is politics, and so I'm going to use the language of economics and politics to talk about what it is you're doing when you say, oh, I bet you are so happy that baby came out blonde. I don't know, why would I be? Why don't you explain it to me? 
Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about something very much in the news, and that's abortion and reproduction. And the recent Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade, there is no longer a federal right to reproductive choice. That issue is now being debated in the states. I wonder if you can reflect on what the fall of Roe means for the struggle for gender equality, and in particular, what it means for women's participation in the economic and the social life of the nation. Um, You know, I said uh, when the... Dobbs decision came down, um, and I should mention that two of my very good friends are longtime reproductive justice workers and organizers. So they have been working on me for years about how I should not be surprised, right? You, see, you know, they've been working on tempering my outrage for a while. And so I was prepared to be very cool about, oh, y'all, oh, y'all are shocked, you're outraged, you know, when, does, when Dobbs happened. And... Um, and still I was outraged and sad. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to process how that could be. Um, and talked to my friends, and guess what? They were too. <laughs> the very people who had been telling me for years, you know, that effectively Dobbs had been the reality for lots of women for many years. You know, we knew those things intellectually. Knowing them emotionally was something very different. And my emotional response at the time is something that I still feel and now think intellectually is even more defensible. The more rational I become about it, I'm even more committed to it. And that was, oh, this is the beginning of the rationalized administrative argument for pushing women back into the private sphere. And I've only become more and more certain that that is what we are seeing. And uh, you can, to my mind, tie what Dobbs has done, um, the accelerated response. You know, uh, many states in preparation had trigger laws, yes, but even for those that didn't, uh, how quickly they had legislation ready uh, after Dobbs but then also how quickly the political rhetoric changed at the state level. Even in states that we had thought of as being fairly, if not liberal, certainly moderate on the issue of abortion, who didn't think that this was a politically winnable issue. We've seen in my own state, for example, the state of North Carolina, where we now think, were it it not for our governor, which is still not considered politically safe, but that is right now, our only line of defense, we are quite literally in the state of North Carolina thinking of ourselves as being at risk for um, uh, reproductive choice in the state of North Carolina. Um, And we're seeing that state after state, which says to me that that is not the beginning, that we were in the middle. For some of us who thought that we were at the beginning of a process we had missed the beginning. We're in the middle of this sort of transformation. And I see that as being connected to many things. I see that as being connected to um, the push to not just privatize public schools, but to delegitimize uh, public school education. The idea that 
we can move public money to charter schools and homeschool initiatives. The idea being that labor mostly will be done not by men, but by women. I think that that is tied to our idea of reinstating the idea of uh, biological gender being a governing public policy. I think this is behind um, trans bans like those that we have seen coming out of Tennessee. I think all of these are connected to my mind as an all out war on women uh, in the economic sphere. Um, and so I see Dobbs not as the beginning, but as sort of like the middle of that war, because what women cannot do when they do not have um, not just reproductive choice, but autonomy is they cannot fully participate in public life. You cannot participate in public life when your when the definition of you as an autonomous citizen is negotiated state border by state border, mm -hmm. right? When your employer cannot be sure of what type of employee you are mm -hmm. as you move from state to state, right? When you cannot make the same economic decisions as a home buyer, um, as an investor, as an entrepreneur, as a traveling salesperson, I think about my, one of my very first jobs out of undergrad. I remember being so proud when I, because I was old enough to rent a car on the company's dime. And their concern was because I just turned, what was it, 24 or something, you had to be old enough to rent the car. Um, and I'm looking back on, uh, and I had to come and show my, the person in HR that just finally gotten old enough, you know, to be on the company's insurance so that I could get the company car. And, uh, and I was thinking about, what is it that you would have to prove to your company now that you could you know, do company business state to state as an employee you know, in their state? And you don't have the same assumption, I think, of full autonomy as a worker, which of course was the economic case for Roe many, um, mm -hmm. many years ago. Uh, but we take for granted that states will interpret that the same state by state. And the argument was that we shouldn't have to take uh, that for granted. And what we've seen, the political rhetoric, is that we cannot uh, take that for granted. Um, I don't know. I think we should be asking you what the sort of like overall legal response is to that. When I'm talking to legal scholars in North Carolina anyway, they do not sound particularly hopeful. They're telling me things like we have to basically do what the right has done state by state with a judicial response, which is, you know, organizing a judiciary that will do these cases state, but that is a 40 year response. Mm -hmm. What kind of economic decisions do women make in that 40 year span? And how do we tell you to predict your life in the meantime? Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I find it all overwhelming and that's what I think my gut felt that day and my brain is still catching up to it. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, that a lot of people felt the way that you're describing that emotional reaction, although there was a leak and we knew that this was coming down the pike, right? Yeah. To actually hear about the decision, to read the decision was just on another level of uh, recognition yeah. of, of where we are. 
in the many ways you describe. Well, let's talk about social media, okay. which also involves the court um, and Congress. You know, there recently were hearings about TikTok, discussions about uh, potential national security threats. The Supreme Court heard a case examining whether uh, those who allege harm by social media should be able to sue technology companies uh, who host certain um, platforms. Um, then there's Elon Musk and his continued reign over Twitter. So a lot going on um, in the, the world of social media and the potential for regulation of it or not, even banning popular platforms. I wonder if you can react to those developments from your position as a sociologist, but also as one who's deeply engaged in the world of social media. My colleagues and I debate the the possibility of regulation. I would be surprised if we see serious regulation in the near term. I think we are seeing a lot more political theater around um, not not regulation, but you know the romance between technology firms and um, politicians are, is maybe souring just a little, but that's not the same as having political will to regulate. One of the things um, my students and I were just actually, we were just debating this last week, we were watching some of the testimony um, uh, for the CEO of TikTok. And I was like, you know, we wanna separate some of the political theater uh, from legislation. It's <laughs> um, so, I'm, I'm not as gung-ho on the idea that we might see regulation um, from either party, actually. Um, some of what I think is driving, however, the political theater that we are seeing um, is that the, the potential for class action lawsuits from uh, the fallout from the documents that we have from Meta um, about uh, child endangerment and mental health uh, does change the, the risk calculus for um, technology companies uh, just a bit. Um, and so I think that has technology firms uh, a little bit defensive um, and has changed the political calculus for some um, elected officials to at least have a, a political position on uh, the responsibility of technology firms in a way they didn't feel like they needed to have a position on it five or six years ago when we were a bit more enamored with technology firms enabling democracy. You know, we believed that the unfettered access to social media and information was enabling global democracy. Um, you didn't need to have a position paper uh, on uh, protecting uh, the young people from the internet. Well, now when parents are concerned about their children's exposure um, uh, to content that may you know, damage their self-esteem, now you need to have a political position on that. So I think that's the calculus that has changed. But we still have to reckon with the fact that we have a regulatory structure that does not give us much that we can do to regulate technology firms as it stands now. We would have to do some serious litigating and technology firms would push back. So unless we want to overhaul um, and fight some very serious legal battles, I don't see a real serious regulation happening. I think mostly what could happen would be in changing con consumer patterns about how we use social media firms. I think that would do more to change the um, 
political will to do uh, any uh, regulation than anything that is likely to happen in the political sphere right now. Um, I think if we fell out of love with social media platforms, which I actually think is far more likely to happen, um, I think that the revenue models for social media are shaky. That's what Elon Musk is discovering, by the way. This is a real fine line to wall, by the way. I think he is more inept than his height, but I don't, you know, many of us maybe are, but he's more inept than his height. He is not as inept as he pretends. Fine line. I think he is playing into a particular narrative there. I think he knew what uh, Twitter's economic challenges were. I think he's playing at another type of game. Everybody knew you couldn't make money, that it had, that it had reached its economic potential. That's why they were looking for someone to sell it to. Everybody knew that the ad structure was gone. Facebook knows the ad structure is gone. Unless, they, unless we come up with something else, everybody kind of knows that the revenue stream for social media is drying up. I argue that between that and social media becoming more and more difficult to use in an enjoyable way, our effective relationship with social media is declining. I think that's going to do more than regulation is ever going to do. Now, that brings us TikTok. Now, TikTok is a challenge because TikTok has something that uh, the other major social media platforms do not have. TikTok is actually still fun. <laughs> and I just say from a, I think that is purely objective, truly. Yes, the algorithm, the algorithm might be more powerful, but it's actually not more powerful in the economic sense. Like it's not better at micro-targeting and selling you things. It is better at identifying your uh, effective triggers, right? It's fun. Facebook hasn't been fun in years, right? Twitter's only fun until you figure out how to use it. And then you're like, oh my God, this is horrible. TikTok is very fun. And the more you use it, the more enjoyable it becomes. I think that is actually what has made it a, that paired with its ownership structure um, being um, uh, a Chinese owned uh, company has made it a political target. And I think they are using its ownership structure to uh, as um, uh, uh, anti-competition strategy. Mm. So we have a lot of questions from the audience and I'm yeah. gonna start to weave those in. But first I want to continue on um, at current events, mm -hmm. uh, you have written so insightfully about the political economy of higher education, including student loan debt cancellation and how some opponents view cancellation as a kind of government handoff. Mm -hmm. Okay. I would love for you to talk about that reaction to that beneficiary mm -hmm. class and the reaction to another recent example of government intervention. This is with the bank failures mm -hmm. uh, and how yeah. there was action to rescue that class of beneficiaries, depositors, most of whom were very well off in terms of their resources. And that happened in a weekend, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So uh, talk about that. What, what is it? What, what, are, what are the values that are at play in our understanding of yes. who deserves governmental aid. And that is the exact right word, values. Mm. Student loan debt cancellation has never ever been about economics. It has always been about values. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been clear to me from 
the beginning, it only becomes, I think, more clear to more people the longer the debate stays in the public discourse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, handouts for me and none for thee. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea that what happens in the in the banking sector can impact the rest of the economy. I believed it. I believe you. Sure, I lived through the the Great Recession. I also know that if you can contain that, you could have contained any inflate inflationary fears that uh, would have spilled over from student loan debt cancellation. That's what I believe. And so far, no one has been able to disprove it. I've asked very smart people many, many, many times. They may get angry when I ask, but they don't say it's impossible. They just say it would be difficult. And that is not the same thing because difficult just means your values don't align with the actions. That doesn't mean it cannot be done. I told some students this recently and they were alarmed. I think the fact of the matter is people who hold student loan debt are not viewed as, I do not think they are thought of as um, being productive citizens, right? Um, not in this like job creator sense and all of that type of thing, um, but that they are more, product, more productive as debt holders. That is their contribution, mm -hmm. right? Um, I borrow here from some work from a fellow sociologist, Louise Seamsters, talked about how in a financialized economy such as ours, that your relationship with your government becomes negotiated through debt. And you are either uh, the creditor or the debtor, right? It is not about job or worker. Our relationship to the state is about you're either a debtor or a creditor. And so forgiving the debt in some weird way would be canceling out this. You, this is your value to us, mm. holding the debt. Um, and I just think we just sort of like refu refuse to let that go. Mm -hmm. You're more valuable to us with the debt. That's all there is to it. So l let's talk about... Um book banning, the move to uh, disallow engagement with history, race, gender, slavery. There's a question coming from the audience about um, why academics are being more vocal when questioning the censorship, the ban on- Wonderful question. Yeah, AP and AP Black Studies. Yeah. Um, why do you think all of this is happening now? Oh, now, yeah, why is this happening now? The election of Donald Trump cannot be overstated, not because he won, but because of how he won and how he governed revealed, I believe, um, how much our institutions operated on faith that there was no sense of accountability or checks and balances. And once that faith, that just, that fundamental just, oh, they worked because we all just kind of sort of believe you did the thing. Once that was blown, right, um, it was open season on everything. Once you could just say, oh no, they just took the votes, the ballots are just gone and there was no accountability or checks or balances 
on any of that. Um, every social institution that especially were weakened, the infrastructure of those institutions had been weakened from years and years of delayed maintenance and in some cases, deliberate underfunding. In the cases of schools, especially public uh, institutions and libraries, especially those uh, in poorer communities and minority communities, right? So you have the intersection of those things, right? We hadn't maintained and cared for our infrastructure and many of them were really only running on faith. So when the faith crumbles, right? There's, not, there's no one there left to defend it, right? This is an ideal time then to attack those institutions. Uh, why aren't we uh, speaking up? We are a part of what wasn't maintained, except for some, some corners of higher education. Uh, we are part of some of the infrastructure that has been systematically underfunded, undercared for, and under-maintained public institutions, historically black institutions, minority serving institutions, the over-reliance on contingent faculty, even if you're not contingent in some institutions, uh, underpaid, uh, teaching extreme loads. Who, who isn't showing up, you know, are a lot of people who had tried to show up for a very long time and I think are demoralized, <laughs> uh, undersupported for a very long time. Um, Having said that, I really do want to turn to a couple of bright spots, which is I do not think it is a surprise then that in this moment, we are seeing a massive amount of collective organizing in higher education, mostly led by graduate student unions, graduate workers, and service workers in higher education. I think in part because the institutional structures have crumbled right in front of their eyes, those of us uh, with tenure or adjacent to tenure haven't sort of stepped into the breach and that has revealed the places where those people who do see themselves as workers, see themselves aligned with each other, have done collective action. Um, that makes me hopeful. I am also, however, deeply dispirited by the fact that the very people who benefit the most from these institutions, from our institutions existing, have not stepped into the gap more to make a case for why we are here and why we exist. And if need be to just stand at the doors of libraries and schools where they are physically removing books, where they are physically removing um, evidence of history. Uh, last week, what was it? They're not gonna show that one in, in the state of Florida, which of course is ground zero here. Uh, yeah, you just can't get around it, right? Ground zero. Um, they removed a movie, one parent is all it takes. One parent cannot like something on a teacher's curriculum and it can be removed. They removed the showing of a film about Ruby Bridges because one parent didn't want her child to find out that uh, white people don't like black people. That was the argument. We should then be showing the film on the side of the schoolhouse. And I mean it. I mean, it until you... And our argument is, but then they win because that's what they want, right? They want us to not show up or they want us to show out and they want us to break the social norm. They want us to break the violation. And I'm going, I don't think you understand. They want us to not exist. Then in the face of wanting us to not exist, the most radical thing you can do is to exist. You don't actually retreat, you exist. Let me tell you who knows that. Trans people know that. 
let me tell you, people of color know that. Minoritized people know that. Vulnerable people know that. You show up when people do not want you to exist. That's when you exist the loudest, right? Uh, if we ever knew, we have forgotten. And it's a real good time to remember. Mm -hmm. Let me get to um, another audience question, and it's a big one. Someone wants to know about your recommendations regarding artificial intelligence and equity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the way AI, such as GPT-4, is trained seems so white, mm -hmm. commentator says. Oh, it doesn't seem. <laughs> this is one of those cases when we talk about artificial intelligence, I think it is an important moment for us to uh, separate its marketing from its uh existing capacity while understanding that yes it, 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 it's potential right um and being critical of its hype we can sometimes reinforce its hype so when people talk about artificial intelligence being transformative and we go all oh, this transformation uh is going to kill millions of jobs and it's going to end uh you know education as we know it well then you're accepting the hype as truth and i think we're not quite there yet um so yes it's trained on data sets that absolutely reinforce not just whiteness but you know uh westernness but also it hasn't completely decentered and destabilized all institutions and i'm not quite sure that it will i do i think it will do many things in the near midterm i'm not exactly sold on the idea for example that it is going to you know displace significant parts of healthcare that is going to take over tons of um um support service work i'm not entirely sold on the idea that it's going to be able to program complex technologies for example um but you know if if we get to that case i think we've got some other questions i do think we need to be very critical about however wanting to tool it to be more diverse until we know what it can do um i think we need to ask more critical questions about what are we programming it to be more diverse for because if artificial intelligence for example is going to be used to be to do better and more efficient sorting signal signaling stratifying and stigmatizing in the case of surveillance then i don't want it to be any better at uh, identifying people of color. We, we're already pretty efficient at identifying and stigmatizing people of color. It can stay white if it wants to do that, right? I don't wanna feed it then more uh, images of people of color. That is what we're gonna do with it. And currently with our regulatory structure on artificial intelligence and how we're using it, it is just as likely that that's how it, it will be used and it will be innovated in police surveillance before it will do anything beneficial for healthcare. Like, let's be honest, right? If it accumulates to our current political economy, it'll be picked up by police departments before it would be picked up in cancer care research. And so until we have a regulatory structure that tells us how and where that's going to work, I think I'm a little more cautious about wanting the data sets to be more diverse. Right. Cassie, uh, let me get you to respond to this one last question. And it is, what advice can you give Black women reckoning with the challenges 
of remaining committed to one's truth in institutions that beg us to abandon ourselves. In briefs. <laughs> you know, you take what works for you and you leave what doesn't. And I think that is the great story of um, being part of any, you know, small group in a big pond, which we still are. We leave a big footprint because we are a big people who's done amazing things. But I think it's important to remember um, that that is still fundamentally the story. And um, so you take what works and you leave what doesn't. Um, when your story is so different than the story of the people who produced you, you can feel responsible for taking it all in, right? Taking advantage of everything that the people around you didn't have the opportunity to do, but you cannot, right? You can't make up for everything denied to people you love and you, you can't make up for everything that didn't happen or could have happened around you. You can only take from the institution the things that work for you and your particular needs and particular interests and you leave behind what doesn't. And that includes the things that would make you over in the institution's image in a way that separates you from the people and the places that you love and that love you back. So any part of professionalization or socialization that separates you too far from the spaces um, and the people and the places that make you feel healthy and whole is I always think a price that is too high to pay. And you keep the parts you love the great library, right? The wonderful books, the great ideas, but I don't think you need to take the places that tell you you shouldn't speak that way, right? I don't tell those stories, right? I don't mention that part again, or uh, you know, maybe I wouldn't dress that way. Or I have such a hard time pronouncing that name, right? I don't think you have to actually take or accept those parts. Do you run the risk of being isolated a bit when you do? Yes, but you run the risk of being mentally unwell and isolated if you do it. Or at least that's always been my calculation. And I have always figured that what was the point of being externally successful and being internally unwell I've seen those people and I think that must be horrible. So take what works, leave what doesn't, try to find a happy medium between just enough external validation that you know, you can live with it, but not at the expense of what you need to be mentally well. And I wish you all good health and good wellness. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Born Curious podcast is brought to you by Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Thanks for joining us. You can find Born Curious wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about Harvard Radcliffe Institute, visit radcliffe.harvard.edu.